I had an editor who always told me that whenever you change something in your publication, no matter how small, you need to let people know so they won't be confused. So beginning Tuesday this week, we will be running two episodes a week through the months of May and June. The reason why we are doing this is because we have a bunch of uh, interviews in the bank, probably too many for us to be sitting on, and we thought it would be better if we shared these with our listeners so that they could enjoy them sooner. Let us know what you think. Let us know if this is too much, but please continue to listen and support our podcast. We enjoy doing it. We're going to be beginning our 11th year come August, and we want to make sure you're there with us. Anyway. Enjoy the extra podcasts. At least at this point in my career, the important thing is encouraging conversations as a way of getting at the truth. The idea of saying shut up in any given situation, to me, not acceptable. If you hear something offensive, you have to respond to it. And that's hard work. We focus a lot on new technology, techniques, and approaches to help us all improve our journalism. But occasionally we get the opportunity to speak to someone who shares invaluable lessons learned over a decades-long career. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to Tell Journalism. Dan Rottenberg is a groundbreaking journalist who, over his long career, has been an editorial page columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, written seven books and more than 300 articles for such magazines as the New York Times Magazine, Playboy, and Rolling Stone. He covered the Chicago 7 trial for the Wall Street Journal and chronicled billionaires for Town & Country Magazine. He also successfully defended seven libel suits, covered protest demonstrations, and faced death threats. He was also the first journalist to use the word yuppie in print. Dan's new memoir is The Education of a Journalist, My 70 Years on the Frontiers of Free Speech. Dan, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. I'm happy you're here, too. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored. You have one of those uh, journalism lives that you know a lot of people dream about having. <laughs> you may not have the same perspective because you're living it. I was trying to figure out where to begin with this conversation, but... Let's start at the beginning. What drew you to journalism? I would say it's interesting. My first publication was in third grade. It was a one-page paper, which sort of characterized my career thereafter. Three things, community, independence, and controversy. And it's been like that ever since. When I was in seventh grade at the Fieldston School in New York, I heard Judith Christ, who was a reporter for the New York Herald Tribune, and spoke at a school assembly, and she said, the goal of a journalist is to find out the truth and put it down in print. That was sort of my mantra for years thereafter. Of course, neither Judith Christ nor I ever imagined that there would become a time when print was obsolete. Yeah. You know, you saw a pretty interesting, or you have seen a pretty interesting transition from print, you know, and the rise of television and and cable television and uh, digital media as well. Could you ever imagined uh, a media environment like this back then? Absolutely not. And I think that's part of the point of of my book. What inspired me to write The Education of a Journalist was the feeling that students in college today are not looking for jobs in journalism. And when you ask them why, they say, well, all the newspapers are folding or they're cutting back. There just aren't any jobs. And that's what motivated me to tell them my story, because I, from the time I was about eight or nine years old, was bound and determined to be a journalist. 
And when I was in college, I assumed I would spend my entire career on daily newspapers. Now, as it turned out, I spent six years on daily newspapers and never again. I mean, uh, the rest of my career has been with forms of journalism that really many of them did not exist when I was in college. For example, city magazines, alternative weeklies, and ultimately the internet. So I guess the point I would like to make, and I hope my book makes it, is that there's always going to be a need for journalists. It may not be in newspapers, but the world needs journalism. And we especially need it now because, as you know, the idea of truth and finding out what's really going on is, is under a lot of attack. In the introduction, I mentioned that you were the subject of death threats and you faced libel suits. Was there ever ever anything in your career that kind of discouraged you, that made you sort of say, well, maybe this isn't the right path for me? <laughs> Interesting question. You know, I don't think I ever did, because as long as you believe that what you are doing is right and you stand up for what you believe, and I am, I've been very fortunate to have worked for publications and publishers who were very uh, gutsy and understood what, what the issues are. One of the main major facets of my career has been I have edited seven different publications. All of them were kind of innovative, starting with Chicago Journalism Review, which started after the 1968 Democratic Convention, when not only uh, protesters, but also journalists were attacked by the Chicago police. And in those days, the, the accepted response for journalists was to go off to a bar and uh, grouse about how terrible everything was. We did not do that. People my age, I was about 26 at the time, we started a publication called the Chicago Journalism Review to critique our own newspapers. And that really took a lot of guts. I was with the Wall Street Journal at the time in Chicago, but the Reporters who worked for the Chicago newspapers were really, you know, they're criticizing their own bosses. And, and uh, that took a lot of guts. But I think the, what is it, the mantra of our generation was you do the right thing and your life will take care of itself. Ultimately, I became editor of uh, three really sort of groundbreaking publications one was uh, The Welcome Mat, which was really a, in Philadelphia, a weekly that I made into a, what became a precursor of the internet. It was a place where the idea was where people who have something to say and no place else to say it, here's where they can say it. And we were printing, it was like a giant op-ed page. Anybody could write, anybody could submit. Of course, I was the editor, I exercised some judgment, but we were publishing really outrageous stuff. And the idea was, I don't necessarily endorse this stuff, but let's get it out there and let's talk about it and let's examine it and let's hold it up to the light as opposed to just saying, shut up. So in the course of doing this, yes, we got sued for libel several times. Fortunately, in fact, we got sued by the mayor of Philadelphia, Frank Rizzo, but he lost that suit. And I think if you stand up for what you believe, it really has strengthened our publication. I like that you said that you were inspired to, you know, hold your bosses to a higher standard, that rather than just complain about it and do nothing, you actually create another publication that is trying to, you know, redress a problem that you see that's going on. 
you know, a lot of journalists, you know, might just go back to the office and complain a little bit to a, a coworker, but we continue on and, well, this is just a, where I work and this is where I get my paycheck. Having this type of attitude, I see it and I hear it from people that I interview who have lost jobs at daily newspapers and are doing startups, that they, they're steeped in journalism, they recognize the need for it, and they're willing to find ways to, you know, make that happen and to, you know, serve these problems. Anyway, do you see any of that sort of spirit in the people who are doing like journalism now in the digital age? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, Havelock Ellis, I think, a psychologist, said the, the byproduct is often more important than the product. Now, when we started the Chicago Journalism Review, our function was to try to improve the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Sun-Times and the, the local papers by criticizing them and also by doing the job that they weren't doing, covering stories that they were just ignoring. And ultimately, I think the long range results was not necessarily a better Chicago Tribune or the result was it sort of planted the seeds of entrepreneurship in myself and many of my generation. And the idea that if you don't like your newspaper, you can start your own maybe not publish a, a full-fledged daily newspaper, but you could publish a weekly. And nowadays, of course, with the internet, you can, you can do almost anything. And I think, you know, sort of what you started at the beginning saying about college students not going to journalism because there weren't, aren't any newspapers or, or so many newspapers are folding, you know, there are plenty of people who have the desire to be journalists and who, I guess it's a matter of changing the perception of what journalism is. That you know, journalism is only a daily, you know, large daily newspaper. Or journalism is only you know, local TV show or local radio. Not understanding that there are all these other opportunities out there, and then linking in what you said, the entrepreneurship. If there's not a publication that you think is that is out there, you know, maybe you you need to be the person who starts that, or get other people to help you start it. You know, tell me about after the 60s, after you started working, you know, in the 70s and 80s, how did your career sort of evolve in these these sort of pre, you know, digital decades? My first job, 1964, was in Portland, Indiana, a town of 7,000. And I'm someone who grew up in New York and Philadelphia. So for me, this was an amazing experience, particularly because it was a special newspaper with a publisher who had started his own paper in, in opposition to the local daily, you know, basically saying, look, you know, everybody, the constitution grants us free speech, but most people don't take advantage of that. He did not like his local newspapers. So he went into competition with it. And to me, that was such an inspiring story. And it showed what you could do even a small town like that. Well, from there, I went to the Wall Street Journal in Chicago I had no real interest in business or experience in business, but I thought it was a very well-run, well-written paper. And they were hiring people like me who, weren't, who were good writers, but not necessarily knew anything about business. Then Chicago Journalism Review started. I got very involved with that. I had always believed in using the tool of criticism to improve the media. And around 1970, after I'd been at the Journal for two years, the Chicago Journalism Review, as I said, was run by journalists. We really did not know how to raise money or run a business, and they, it was ready to fold. And I felt so strongly about it that I left the Wall Street Journal to become the managing editor of Chicago Journalism Review. The idea was, well, I'll spend, I think, 
three days a week at the journalism review and trying to raise money for it. And the other four days I would freelance. Well, I never really raised a lot of money for the journalism review. Let's face it. I mean, journalists are not good fundraisers or business people, but I did at the same time develop a freelance business for myself. And I became a movie critic for Chicago Magazine, and I started writing for other publications. And so one thing kind of leads to another. And then it's a point I make in my book that being a journalist, it's sort of like riding a, a raft down a fast moving river. You know, if you know how to operate the raft, it's going to take you just from one adventure to another without much effort on your part. And meanwhile, everyone on shore is just sort of sauntering along very slowly. So that's the point I think I would make. I never really thought, gee, I want to be at such a point in five years or 10 years. And the interesting thing is, you know, I've twice in my career, I left the Wall Street Journal to go to the Chicago Journalism Review. Then from Chicago, I became executive editor of Philadelphia Magazine. I was there about two and a half years, and then I left there to freelance. So twice there, I left basically secure and prestigious publications to start again from scratch. You know, my family thought I was crazy. I must say my wife was very supportive. But I later came across a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, which I think perfectly fit my situation and anyone else who did that. And she said, very often the person who gives up a secure position for something he believes in thinks he's destroying his career, but actually he's making his career. And I guess uh, that's pretty much, you know, what happened to me. You sound like you had a lot of confidence in your, your ability, in your craft, to know that, well, if this doesn't go the way I want it to go, I have alternatives. I can step away. If I disagree with something, you know, that you want to make a stand about something, or it may just be, yeah, this isn't what I want to do. I want to, I want to do something else, but I know that, you know, I'm not going to be necessarily starving, that I have these skills and I know how to make myself. Yeah, that's right. And I, I guess if I have a flaw, it's that I assume everybody else can do what I did. You know, in retrospect, maybe that's not really fair. But just as an example, I left Chicago in 1972 to, to go to Philadelphia Magazine. Did a lot of very good writing there, but it was really neurotic and unhappy kind of place. And I decided pretty early on that I didn't want to stay there. But on the other hand, I didn't know where I was going to go. But at the same time, I had started writing a film column for Chicago Magazine before I left Chicago, and they were syndicating it to city magazines and other cities. So I started taking that check that I got each month from Chicago Magazine, maybe about 20% of my total income. I just put it away in a, back in the old days of passbook savings accounts, I called this my escape fund. I'm not gonna touch it until I leave Philadelphia Magazine. And I found several things happened. First of all, I started feeling better about my situation at Philadelphia Magazine because I, I was doing something about it. You know, I was putting this money aside. And the other thing was I found it made me a more effective editor because if the publisher or advertisers asked me to do something that I thought was unethical or outrageous, I would just say, sorry, you know, can't do it. And 
invariably the publisher would say to me, uh, you know, I really respect you because you stand up for what you believe. I was able to stand up for myself because I had this cushion of this uh, side income coming in. And I guess the lesson I would give to everybody else is whatever you're making in your current job, you can live on 20% less. If you're not happy, take that 20%, put it aside, and it will do good things for you. It will also enable you to move to some other opportunity at a lower, lower income maybe than what you're making now because you have this cushion. So I'd say at the end of my book, I have all kinds of a long list of lessons I've learned. And that's one of them, the 20% rule. <laughs> and that's a good one because, you know, you sort of allude to that, that not only does it sort of strengthen you, but it, it gets you out of that position where you feel like you have to go along. You have to agree because, you know, you don't have an escape plan. So having an escape plan with money, yeah, that frees you up and you don't have that whole level of, of worry about it and you're not creating extra pressure for yourself. Let me add, add one other thing while we're on that subject. I've been very lucky, I think, in where I wound up working. I worked for some terrific publishers and owners in about five different situations where a mediocre publication had been turned into something really admirable. Philadelphia Magazine was one example. Actually, the Wall Street Journal back in the 20s was a totally corrupt publication. It was completely turned around in the 30s and 40s. Philadelphia Magazine, Philadelphia Inquirer, I wrote for them for years. That was one of the worst papers in America in the 60s. And then Gene Roberts in the 70s made it one of the most admired papers. And one thing I've, I've concluded, you know, we editors, we journalists think we're the ones who make papers good or bad. And I really think ultimately it's the owner. If you have a good owner, good things are going to follow. The one thing I wanted to add, though, in terms of your indi my individual, to the extent that I've succeeded, to the extent that I've been able to be an independent journalist, seize opportunities where they came, take risks, ultimately, I have concluded that the most important factor was my marriage. I had a wife who basically supported me psychologically. At, you know, when, whenever I wanted to do something crazy, if I was in a situation where the whole world was against me, I come home at night, she's happy to see me. If I'm in a situation where I'm broke, because uh, freelance writing, uh, sometimes that happens, I come home, she's got a separate income as a music teacher. So ultimately, I think that's really what made the difference. So, you know, you're doing all this freelance work, you're working for newspapers and, and magazines. When the internet started to sort of change the way, you know, change the landscape of the publications out there. What was kind of your experience and how did you sort of handle that? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is the, the prologue to this book, the title is, Where Did I Go Right? And I talk about how lucky I've been and, and all this sort of thing. Then you get to the, get to the epilogue to the book. The title is, Be Careful What You Wish For. And the more I think about it, I could have titled it, where did I go wrong? Because much of my career was spent, I would say, particularly when I was running alternative weeklies, alternative publications, including on the internet itself, trying to promote the idea that freedom of speech belongs to everybody, not just to newspaper publishers, not just to professional journalists. So when the internet came along, I mean, first of all, I was doing this at the Welcome At in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia Forum 
and Broad Street Review, which is still functioning. That's an arts and culture website that I started 16 years ago. But the idea in all of these was anybody who has valuable insight can write for us. You don't have to be a professional. And I was trying to break down the wall between professionals and other you know, amateurs. The idea was that everybody has something to contribute. Well, now I'm in a world where... Everybody has I, something to contribute. Right. Uh, <laughs> anybody can write on the internet and professional journalists are almost being drowned out by everybody else. So it's like, I, this is what I wished for, came to pass, and now I'm sort of having second thoughts. But on the other hand, I would say we don't live at the end of history. This is just the beginning of the internet. And what's really interesting to me is you look at the fears and concerns that are expressed about the internet today, they are exactly the same fears that were expressed 500 years ago when Gutenberg invented movable type. There were two basic concerns at the time. One was it was going to stir up the lower classes and disrupt the social order. And the second one was that it would lead to an outpouring of pornography. And both of those things happened, but I don't think any of us would say, gee, it's a shame that he invents movable type. Humans found a way to adjust to that. And the same thing today, everybody's saying, oh, the internet is, you know, the whole world's going to hell because of the internet. We're going to figure out a way to figure out what's reliable and what isn't reliable and develop new institutions. I mean, the, the real need today is really for reliable, authoritative journalist institutions that can hire professionals and support them. These are the institutions I've been challenging most of my life. And now I'm saying, gee, you know, we really need uh, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and CNN and whatever. Because we've seen what a world like would be like without them. You know, when I started the podcast 10 years ago, one of the things at that time I was thinking a lot about, because that was sort of at the point when so many cities who had maybe two large dailies, and even some that had only one large daily, were seeing those dailies shrink or disappear. And my perspective at that time was, well, maybe that's a good thing, because on the one hand, they're providing you with just one perspective of the news. They're not necessarily, I mean even good newspapers, this is what they have identified as news and they're, you know, they're choosing things for you. But when the internet comes along and a lot of those tools, the storytelling tools are handed over to the, you know, the public in mass. And then it becomes the question of, well, what needs to be saved in journalism? What, what are the, you know, the tenants, what separates somebody who takes a picture of a car accident from a journalist who goes to a scene of a car accident and takes pictures and, and reports a story? We've seen all of that play out on the internet, and I think we're still not at the end of you know what the final answer to all this is. Absolutely. I would say, as I said, I've spent a lot of my time in alternative journalism, and the idea of using opinions and having conversations. When I was at the Wall Street Journal, the editor, the editorial page was Vermont Royster. The one time I met him, he said to me, and I'm sure he said it to every other reporter, you can get opinions from any cab driver. What matters is the insight that you can bring to the reader. That's always been one of my mantras. And the idea behind a lot of the publications I've run is the idea that since none of us owns the truth, 
that the solution lies not in silencing anybody, but in listening to each other. And that's, you know, encouraging a conversation among people of all ages, backgrounds, viewpoints. I've been the victim of some of this because I've, I've allowed, let's say, men and women to say things about each other that men saying things that women don't like, women saying things men don't like. But to my way of thinking, we're really just beginning to scratch the surface of understanding, let's say, between men and women, between blacks and whites, between gays and straights, liberals and conservatives, whatever it is, the really important thing is the conversation. And there's this instinct, you know, to silence what we call bad speech now. And you look at how it's threatening even the most professional organizations. I mean, in the past year, 2021, the New Yorker was going to interview Steve Bannon they canceled their plans because a Twitter mob and, and their own staff objected. The Times, the New York Times, fired their editorial page editor for publishing an op-ed column by a conservative senator. The New York Review of Books fired its editor for publishing a piece by an accused sex abuser. The Philadelphia Inquirer forced the editor to resign over a headline that was considered insensitive to Black Lives Matter. And of course, uh, you see what happened to Whoopi Goldberg a couple of what in this past month. She said something that was not well thought out about the Holocaust. What she said is probably shared by many other people. And she was suspended by the show, The View, for two weeks. I feel she really did a service by saying what's on her mind because she gave everyone else the opportunity to set her straight. And if she had just mouthed the normal platitudes, no one else would have had that opportunity. I would say, at least at this point in my career, the important thing is encouraging conversations as a way of getting at the truth. And the idea of saying shut up in any given situation is, to me, not acceptable. If you hear something offensive, you have to respond to it. And that's hard work. Right. And the same token, I think... You know, they have the right to, you know, object to something that you say and hold people accountable for the words that they use. That doesn't necessarily mean that they they should you know, have the power to erase others who say something that offends them or say something that they don't believe in or support. You know, I like the idea of what you're saying, a fostering conversation, you know, and you see this in the comment boards that people are really prone or they're prone to wanting to react in some way. Maybe they don't really read the story or they see a headline and they assume that the story is going to be about this. And so then they, they comment on it because, you know, they want to have their hot take or they want to lay out their position that, well, I, I think this is all, all negative. I had a, I read a story about some parents in, in um, Northern Virginia who were objecting to certain books that were in, in the local high school library I reported what the person said at the school board meeting, at a public meeting where people can come up and express their opinions. Well, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't about the books. It was about, I'm confusing two things. It was about the mask mandate in schools. And, you know, I included in that context information that's saying, well, this argument that this person is making is not supported by, you know, the science. And this is what, you know, the government is actually asking, this, that, and the other. So basically writing a story that has multiple points of view you know, puts somebody's, 
you know, objections or comments into, into perspective with reported facts. And, you know, I had somebody send me an email and saying, you should not give these people a platform that you're just helping them to, you know, to share their message. And I find that dangerous. Personally, I don't necessarily believe what the person said, but, you know, I respect her right to say it in a public forum because when you say things in the public forum, what you say is open to be challenged. And, you know, that's part of the journalist's job. And it's not just to write somebody down or denigrate them, but, but to report the story and, you know, put it in context. I think that's the role that we need to work on some more. But tell me, what are the things that concern you most, you know, after your 70 years in journalism, what is it that concerns you most about the industry at this point? Well, I would just say it's, it's the lack of or the shortage of really authoritative voices that uh, people can rely on. But I think those are being developed. What you were just saying about what people object to or, or when there's a monopoly newspaper, I've spent most of my career uh, attacking monopolies, but my idea was if you don't like your local newspaper, start your own. And that was kind of unrealistic maybe 60, 70 years ago, but nowadays with the internet, you can start a publication. I mean, uh, offset printing enabled the rise of alternative weeklies in the in the late 60s, early in the, in the 70s. You can start your own publication. And my idea was, okay, let's diversify the, the number of voices that are out there. So if somebody says to me, I don't like what you're printing, I can say to them, well, you know, there's this other paper in our town. You can go there. We're not a public utility. We're not forcing anybody to read us or or support us. We're having a conversation here. And if you're welcome to join the, the conversation, but you can't really dictate to us what our conversation is going to be. I think what you're talking about is you covered a, a school board meeting and people expressed opinions. And in your reporting, you pointed out that some of these opinions were not valid. And that's okay. I think you're serving your readers. And the interesting thing to me is a lot of people say the New York Times now is too opinionated in its news coverage. I feel the Times is better now than it's ever been before because it used to consider itself the newspaper of record. It was kind of you know, this official publication publishing people's speeches and not taking sides on anything except maybe on the editorial page. But they have now, I believe, and this is what the Wall Street Journal was doing even before the Times, basically saying our job is to serve our readers, not to serve some abstract public. And we're going to tell our readers what's going on because we have this expert knowledge and we're going to share that with them. And if they don't like it, well, they can get their information somewhere else. They can go to Fox News if they want, but we're going to tell them. In other words, it would have been inconceivable. Presidents of the U.S. have always lied at, you know, at some level, but I don't think uh, the Times or any other paper ever really said routinely that president is lying, which they are now, whenever Trump says that he won the election. It's fascinating if you're, you know, in a position to observe the way journalism has evolved in the last five years to tackle this real problem. I agree with you. Kind of think the New York Times assuming that mantle of being the, you know, the paper of record in a way almost shackled themselves. 
you know, well, we're just kind of reporting what happened, but, you know, not taking those extra steps to say, well, what we really need to do is report the truth. And the truth is not going to be balanced. The truth may seem like it's being written from a particular direction, but it's a valid approach to covering the news to say somebody is lying, provided you provide evidence to that effect in context to what you're reporting. It used to be newspapers were bending over backwards. They say, we're going to be fair to people we write about. Now, I think what they're saying, which is really more important, we're going to be fair to our readers. To say we're going to be fair to the people we write about is basically an invitation to be manipulated by the people you're writing about. And the Wall Street Journal, even back when I was there, was famous for this. If a corporate executive said something ridiculous, and we knew it was ridiculous, we just said it, that this isn't so. Now, the Wall Street Journal, of course, had a very highly educated audience consisting of corporate executives and investors who really had a vested interest in knowing what was really going on, as opposed to many publications today where the readers are mostly have a vested interest in greasing their own prejudices. So Yeah. They're looking for, for things that affirm what they believe or how they interpret events. The other bit of advice I tell to journalists is don't go to journalism if you want any friends. Because journalists generally aren't liked. Occasionally we get we get accolades. The reason we give give ourselves so many awards is because nobody else is going to give us awards, I think. But we're not necessarily the, the most popular people in the room. But it's almost become in the sort of denigration of our industry – this idea that we do no, no good or that when we do things, it's all called into question. And I think part of the problem is on us in better explaining our processes, making what we're doing more transparent. And, you know, as you said, demonstrate to people that we're reporting this, this story in this particular way because, you know, we have deigned that these are the facts, these are the things we reported, and it is more of a benefit to you to know this information rather than just support what you may believe. I mean, that's a good point, Michael, that maybe we journalists aren't promoting our craft as we should, as much as we should. On the other hand, I think journalists for a long time and publications got spooked by this idea of you've got to be unbiased. And the bias is the biggest sin of journalism. It really isn't. Ignorance is the biggest sin of journalism. And I often ask people, if you want to find out what's going on in a given situation, which would you prefer to receive your information from? Somebody who is biased but knowledgeable or somebody who is unbiased but ignorant? <laughs> to me, it's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. yeah, as long as you know where they're coming from, you can discount the things, some of what they're saying, but maybe you can trust the facts as they report them. So, you know, what made you decide that you wanted to write a, a memoir? Well, I think the real original inspiration was when I went to a session at the Daily Pennsylvania at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania. And I asked the students there, I was at this point, I'm in my 60s. I said, how many of you plan to go into journalism? And nobody raised a hand. And one of them said, no, there aren't any jobs. All the newspapers are folding. And that's when I really felt I've got to tell them. You know, I thought I would spend my whole life in news, daily newspapers. Turned out I started six years in daily newspapers. And then 
all kinds of other things opened up because I was a journalist. I've had a freelance trade for many years. And because I had been at the Wall Street Journal in the late 60s, in the 70s, there were very few good journalists who were writing about business. And because I had been there, publications were looking, calling on me, including the New York Times Magazine. Then in the 80s, all of a sudden, the whole world becomes very interested in business. And you just never know. You develop your craft, and you never quite know what's going to work. And I think that's one of the points I make in the book, that success in journalism or any other field for that matter is a matter of finding your niche and finding a place for yourself in that niche or creating a niche of your own. I think that's true of any occupation almost. I mentioned, by the way, in, in my prologue, I think A.J. Liebling, the famous New Yorker critic, he once said, I am not the best writer in the world, nor am I the fastest writer in the world, but I can write better than anyone who's faster, and I can write faster than anyone who's better. So in effect, he found his niche. You know, that's, that's a great way to define your job. This has been really fascinating. I have not read your book, but I do want to read your book. How can people uh, get a copy of it? Okay, the book is The Education of a Journalist is the title. You can find it on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, online. And you can also go to the website of the book, RedmountPress.com. Dan, this is a great conversation. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>